This is The Other 14 Podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 5 of The Other 14 Podcast for the 2022-23 Premier League season. This is a podcast that forgets the so-called Big Six and focuses on the other 14. Game Week 4 brought us some interesting results, but unfortunately, none of the other 14 were able to take the scalp of a Big Six team. However, two of the other 14 have managed to maintain their unbeaten starts of the season. That being said, Leeds and Fulham's great starts both came to an end with slender losses. Both Palace and Leicester will be disappointed they could not achieve shock away wins against City and Chelsea respectively, particularly as both teams looked like they were in the driving position for significant parts of the game. And the manager upset continues as poor performances of Villa and Bournemouth this weekend put more pressure on Gerrard and Parker. Is there a sacking coming imminently? We talk about all the results from this week and look forward to a double-week bonanza on the horizon. And this week, as always, we are joined by Tom. Hello. Hello, Tom. After this week's collection of games, who do you think will be the happiest and most disappointed when the full-time whistles blew? Yeah, I think certainly, Reese. we're looking at uh, Brighton, definitely, to uh, be one of the most um, happiest with the results, you know, keeping that unbeaten run going. Newcastle, again, looking good after their heroics against City the previous week. Disappointing and rather shocking performance from Bournemouth to ship nine is not one uh, that they will be very happy with and rather shell-shocked with, as Parker has uh, mentioned in his post-match comments. And West Ham will be happy. First goal and first win. I'm sure David Moyes, as we said last week, will be extremely happy with that 1-0 win. And I think most importantly, he'll be happy with a clean sheet also. And first things first, over to Tom with the classifieds. Here are the classified results for match week four of the 22-23 season. Southampton nil, Manchester United 1. Brentford 1, Everson 1. Brighton Hove Albion 1, Leeds United 0. 2, Leicester City 1. 9, yes, 9, Bournemouth 0. 4, Crystal Palace 2. 2, Fulham 1. Nottingham Forest 0. 2, Wolves 1, Newcastle 1. Aston Villa 0, West Ham United 1. Perfect. And thank you for those classified results for game week four. Every player looks forward to a Saturday three o'clock kickoff. And for a smaller side going to the big grounds, it is a really special moment. Walking out in front of over 50,000 fans would have been one of the biggest crowds some of the Bournemouth lads would have played in front of. However, reality kicked in extremely quickly, resulting in some very sour cherries. 9-0. Let me say that again, 9-0. A scoreline normally left for Southampton, but maybe there is something in the water down on the south coast. Tom, we do not revel in the misfortune of a huge Premier League loss. It has not been a good week for Scott Parker, has it? What do Bournemouth need to change? That is a very, very good question, Reese. And I think um, on top of that list... um, Scott Parker will certainly be the most eager to hear the answer for that because at the moment his cherries look absolutely shell-shocked and that's exactly what he said post-match. I mean, what can you say about that result? 
like you said, I'm guessing Southampton fans will be breathing some sort of sigh of relief that a South Coast team has shipped nine and it's not them this time round. Defensively all over the place, didn't look at all that they had any form of control of the game. A 0.29 XG basically summed that up for Bournemouth. And Scott Park even mentioned post-match that on top of it being a shell-shocking result, he mentioned that quite a number of times, that it wasn't surprising, which I think if you were a Bournemouth fan listening to that, you'd sound a little bit surprised and sort of worried for about, you know, for what's to come. Exactly. Those words are... They're bizarre words because Scott Doesn't Parker... instill your confidence? No, and Scott Parker knows what squad he has. He's had most of the summer to make any transfers the club could make. And don't get me wrong, Bournemouth, out of any team in the league, probably have one of the smallest operating budgets. But if you're going to that game, you know your squad might not be up for it. Why were they playing the way they did? Yeah, most te- most teams will go to Anfield, knowing, particularly some of the teams further down the table, that their best chance is to sit deep, frustrate Liverpool for trying to get through to like the seventy minute mark, and hope it's nil nil at that point, and then maybe push for a last minute goal or really push for the last twenty minutes and try and snatch something at the death. However. Bournemouth didn't do any of that. Admittedly, Liverpool did well to find space between, I think they were playing a back five and then a midfield four. So they had a lot of players. But then when Bournemouth did go on the attack, even when they were a couple goals down, they were sending five men forward in an attack. Are they mad? There's no seems to be no tactical awareness there because at this point, their goal difference is now... Minus 14 after four games. They're going to be down there come the end of the season. And that is pretty much a point there and then. Minus 14 starting off now. I just don't know what I was watching from the team. No, um, completely agree with everything you said. That goal difference now at minus 14 pretty much acts as an extra minus point um, to go against you. They have had a tough... Start in terms of fixtures, you know, that um, even though you know, did get the win against Villa, who were supposed to be on paper the, the favourites for that game, and Bournemouth, you know, fair play to them, did come up with a win. Um, but then they've had the likes of City, Arsenal, and then Liverpool um, to play, and it's it's been it's been tough. There's no two there's no two ways about it. It's been tough for the Cherries. Their fixtures going forwards do sort of reduce a little bit in difficulty, um, but they're still tough games. You're looking at um, Wolverhampton Wanderers who are desperate for a win right now. Forest away at the city ground, Brighton at home. It, it's not, it, it's going to be, you know, all, all hands to the pump really to try and get this Bournemouth season up and running. Parker has had some success with the shape that he set up with um, against Liverpool in the past. We look to the full COVID season when Fulham were up under Scott Parker and they did come away with a win at Anfield. It was again a surprising result and against the Liverpool side that wasn't necessarily firing all cylinders. And I think I, I maybe Scott Parker thought, I'm just going to try the same thing again and see if this works. But it, it clearly was up against a wounded tiger of the likes of Liverpool. And if you poke it too many times, that tiger's going to wake up. And and they certainly did. 
and Bournemouth felt the full force of that, unfortunately. And maybe just a little bit of naivety from Scott Parker there. Yeah, it just seems massively naive because what what was it? Four nil at half time? Five nil. Oh, it's oh at that point. <laughs> oh God. Yeah. I forgot that it was that bad. But even then, you have a you have at least more than one game plan. He went they went there. I'm not to be honest, I'm not sure what their game plan was initially. And whatever game plan they had would have been disrupted instantly because they conceded two within the first five minutes or so, didn't they? So immediately that plan's out the window. But then I know this might be the very negative approach that I might promote more times than not. But it's damage control at that point. Yeah. I don't know the last team in the league that was 2-0 down against Liverpool and came back to win the game. But it definitely wouldn't have been a team of kind of the stature and size of Bournemouth. And I, as you say, I'm not sure Parker's words would have really helped. What is going to inspire those fans? Are they going to go, ah, oh, you know, the manager's taken that on the chin. We tried something different and it didn't pay off. Not paying off. 9-0 isn't something not paying off. 9-0 is an absolute massacre. And it, it's just, oh, I, I don't get how, I don't get how he can walk away from that. And I don't think he's walking away with that with any positives in his mind. No. But there are better ways to approach that game than the way they did. And it was just brutal. The like, as you say, the likes of Ipswich, the likes of Southampton, are the teams that have been humbled by that amount. And to be honest, they were very lucky it wasn't more than nine because Liverpool missed some golden opportunities as well. Salah had missed at least a couple of sitters there as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And they were more lucky that it wasn't more. Um, and as you say, going forward, their next couple of fixtures taking them up to, if we go all the way through to the international break, They've got Wolves, Forest, Brighton, Newcastle. <laughs> like, where where do, where do they get points there? Mistly, Wolves not playing too well, so you never know. Yep. Forest, City ground, you, you never know. They might be able to get something there. But then Brighton and Newcastle, if they're still running on this sort of hot form, you don't see them getting anything from either of those fixtures. No. And I, I think you have to be a little bit sort of less harsh on Scott Parker in a little bit of in a little way. You know, what what can you exactly say after a nine nil defeat? There is not much. So, you know, you can he's probably still sort of in the moment of just trying to understand what he actually saw on the pitch there. There's not much you can really say afterwards. I think they'll probably just sort of step away from maybe a day and just sort of come back on the training pitch maybe uh, Monday, um, Tuesday time just before you know the next round of fixtures come around and just sort of assess where they are at. I think one of the saving graces for the moment for Bournemouth is that they actually have points on the board. Um, if it wasn't that case, then I think it would definitely be panic stations. And I think also that the other saving grace right now is that they don't have to face another of the big six for another nine games. So there is a chance there if they can bring a couple of players in before the end of the transfer window to then get a bit of run of form together. And then maybe, you know, you can actually get something going. Do Bournemouth stay patient with Scott Parker? I think you've got to give him at least a run of those games before you get a sense of where Bournemouth might be ending up. But clearly, when they play against the top six, they just don't have it to to 
to at least force something or be competitive in those games where some of the other four teams definitely do. Yeah, I think I think you're right. Give him a bit more time. I, I'm not sure there's really many managers that stand out and go, oh, that'll be the perfect fit. They've got a run of teams that don't look too pretty over the next few. But as you say, going down, they've got a while until they play. Oh, but saying that, there's no, there's no easy game in the Premier League these days, really. Um, but I would say keep him until at least the World Cup break, because if they and if they are going to make the decision, then I think they might make it then, because a new manager will come in and actually have time to work with whatever players in the squad aren't going to the World Cup. It wouldn't surprise me if we saw a couple of managers go just before the World Cup break, just because it does give that kind of new period for a new manager to kind of bed into the club. Because that's what a good, oh, good four weeks break from yeah. Looking at Bournemouth's fixtures, uh, game week sixteen is on the twelfth of November, and game week seventeen is in the twenty sixth of December. So the Boxing Day fixture. So there is yep. a good break there for any new manager to come in. I just think it's quite interesting how last week we talked about managerial potential sackings, and we didn't even mention Scott Parker and Bournemouth. But maybe that is because Bournemouth's expectation is to maybe just barely survive. And they're on yeah. form for that at the moment. In the preview pod, we were expecting this from Bournemouth pretty much, weren't we? Which is yeah. a bit of a bit of a shame. But their squad doesn't look up for it, does it? They're just not very... They don't have the strength of other squads all around the pitch. And I, based on this start, and I know they've had a pretty ugly start with four of the first teams being... City, Arsenal and Liverpool but even those losses weren't necessarily inspiring or giving confidence so I think they should keep Parker for now and I do like Scott Parker I'm just not sure whether they can stay up but then I'm not sure anyone can keep them up with this squad at the moment No, I think you'll be sort of hard to come across a manager like you said who, who has the the knowledge and the expertise to to sort of manage that that squad away from the bottom three right now yeah yeah, and the thing is, I think you might as well at this point give give Parker more of a chance because otherwise you're going to get the standard manager merry-go-round and we know all of those managers that will be looking for a job all of a sudden. Yep. I'm pretty sure Dice is still out of a job. Allardyce is still out of a job. And they immediately come to my mind as soon as you think of any team that needs to stay up because they were serially good at it. But at the same time, they're no one's no one can work magic and maybe parker's relationship with that squad maybe the uh, the best thing going for them because they're not blessed with money it's not like they can go into january and spend 70 80 million and i just don't think that's in bournemouth's nature to go and spend that sort of money no here's an unfortunate result for bournemouth but i hope they can turn it around because i like scott parker i like i like bournemouth as a club i've got nothing really against them but this might just be a case of this league is just a little too big for them, unfortunately. Yeah. And moving on, Sunday 2pm, the fixture everyone was looking forward to, the John Carew Derby, which took place at Villa Park. With two former Merseyside rivals in the dugouts, David Moyes came out on top with West Ham's first goal, clean sheet and win of the season. While once again, Gerard and his men got booed off the pitch. What did you make of the game and the result, Tom? Well, I think first of all, Reese, you have to add um, in in you know in the, in the edit 
the um, look. Like there needs to be a klaxon now because you know West Ham have finally scored a goal. They're off. They're off and running. Yeah, I think a lot of uh, a lot of West Ham fans on social media very much had that klaxon going in their head. I was out. Um, I couldn't actually watch the game on TV, and I wasn't at the ground. But when that goal came, I was amongst some friends at a barbecue. And I may have made a slightly high-pitched squealy noise. <laughs> and then also... As to be expected. And then also when, at the 90 minutes, there's a lot of strong fist pumping, which um, I think alarmed some people. But as you were saying, the three points to West Ham. Yeah, um, three points to West Ham, finally off and running. Ultimately, though, I think it was rather a forgettable game. It's not one that would go down in the history books as a instant Premier League classic. And I think the deflected uh, four nails goal pretty much sums up what that game was all about. Villa booed off. Steven Gerrard directly booed um, from some of the fans at the end, and he acknowledged that in in his post match. You know, he's he's not um, he's not naive in that sense to to sort of disregard it. He he knows he's under pressure. And um, you think probably that this hopefully for West Ham is the turning point. Um, but those three points definitely can't or couldn't have come soon enough, especially with West Ham's up and coming fixtures. I, I just think that for me in general, that that was not really a game that sort of had a, had a lot to it. It was more just a, a game of endurance to try and see who would actually get a goal more than anything else. And West Ham were ultimately the ones who came away with a goal. Mm. Yeah, it was an ugly fight. It was two people fighting over a kebab on a high street yeah, at 3am on a Saturday morning. I think maybe West Ham were owed some luck because of the deflection. Yeah. Uh, they, I think they were unlucky to have not got more in the Forest game. So we say it's a Pablo Fornals goal, but, and his shot may have been going on target, but it was a goal. <laughs> it, uh, the ball crossed the line and there wasn't a foul, an offside, and VAR couldn't look at it. And by the laws of the game, that goes as a goal. Uh, it counts as a goal, uh, even if it's not pretty. Yeah. Um, I think probably Villa, based on what I've seen, Villa had more of a fair share of the game in the first half and then West Ham mixed it up a little bit in the second half in terms of their formation, which I think made an impact. And then I think maybe on the second half, West Ham probably deserved it. They defensively looked very strong with the combination of Zuma and Kera as centre-back partners. Um, I think they largely as a team, limited Villa to some fairly low-quality efforts overall in the game. Um, but as you say, the game wasn't full of scandal. It wasn't full of class. But in terms of West Ham, Moyes will be so happy with those first three points for them. And that I think that's all. That was kind of the baseline of what they needed from the game. And with their next couple of games coming up, home to Tottenham midweek on yep. Wednesday, and then... Uh, away at Stamford Bridge, it's not it's not the most pleasant of combinations. No, um, so and then hosting Newcastle as well there as well. Yeah, I definitely think that the win was definitely needed. Do you do you reckon this is the, the turning point for West Ham season to get their, their season finally up and running um, to get on a good run? I think the players were definitely lacking confidence, um, understandably so. Three games, three losses, but. Their three games that they lost weren't the easiest games. Obviously, and we said this last week, Brighton bogey team, Forest, they were unlucky to win. 
and first game losing at home to City. Then their next few games are a little tricky with Spurs, Chelsea and Newcastle. And I think the players were low on confidence. I think this win will do them a world of good. They've still got, uh, they now got some European fixtures coming up as well, which will help build momentum. And I think we've spoken quite a lot about Forrest having signed 16 to 19 new players, but West Ham have signed eight new players, something like that, seven or eight new players. And it will take time to bed them into the squad. They also had some big characters leave. I think we've mentioned this on the preview pod. They've lost Mark Noble. Um, got he, he hasn't died, um, but he that's uh, an RIP. <laughs> he just uh, retired, and they've lost some other big voices in the changing room and some big players that have been there for quite a long time. So it was definitely a bit of a rebuild, and they've um, added some really good players, I think, into the squad in this last week. They've had Emerson sign from Chelsea. Obviously, unfortunate, I think, to be subbed off at half time, but I think that was less about his performance and more about changing the shape of uh, the team that Moise was looking at. And then today, uh, West Ham have confirmed the signing of Lucas Paqueta from Lyon, which is a pretty big transfer, I think. He was kind of looked at by a number of big clubs. So I think he's the sort of creative midfielder that West Ham would really need at this point. Overall, the transfer window has been good for them, but I think we've seen evidence that it's kind of taken some time for the ball to get rolling with them. And you're right. I think a lot of people have been saying it. Maybe this is a bit of a launch pad for them to start playing some really good football, even if it's not really good winning football. Yeah. And I think the main thing there is just like you said, just to to get things up and running. Um, You've mentioned the transfers that have come in uh, so far during the summer Moyes has already mentioned that it, it, will, it will take some time to bed in. But, but you look at the, the names on that list that have come into the London Stadium there and amongst sort of eight new arrivals to, to add to the squad and to strengthen it, they're also internationals as well. So that would definitely definitely help West Ham, you, you'd like to think, going forward. And is it time to call that West Ham midfield the Ben's Originals midfield with uh, Paqueta and Rice? But you're right. In terms of if you look at the players that have left West Ham this window, I think everyone was looking for a rebuild. And I think when you look at the type of players David Moyes would typically try and sign, and typically West Ham's owners are known for maybe trying to get a little bit of a deal. But that seems to have completely changed for them, this transfer window. And I think a lot of West Ham fans had, I think, justifiable concerns about the ownership of the club and the way they were spending the money or not spending money, particularly when they moving into the new stadium wants to show European intent. Well, they had a good run in Europe last season, in it again. And then in terms of players out, Issa Diop, Yarmolenko, Ryan Fredericks, Vlasic and Masuaku out on loan, Mark Noble retired, David Martin released from the club. And then in terms of them players coming in, I think they're all mostly upgrades on those positions. So Alphonse yeah. Ariola in, Tilo Kera from PSG, Emerson from Chelsea, Maxwell Corney from Burnley, uh, Aguerd from uh, Stad Rene, and Skamaka from Swolo, and then Paqueta. They're all players with a 
high level of experience in terms of yep. like the standard they've played up to. So, you know what? I think it's all been upgraded so far. The performances haven't matched that, but I think it's just a matter of time before it kind of really kicks into gear for West Ham. Yeah, time will definitely tell with this squad, but from the outside looking in, that those signings do look like the, like the signs of, of decent squad management. West Ham have definitely been punching above their weight over the last couple of seasons, sort of fighting with the big boys. But for them to maintain that position now, those were the sort of signings that, um, that West Ham definitely had to make. And like I said, time will definitely tell with that squad. Uh, exactly. And it now relies on, well, the owners can now turn around to David Moyes and go, look, we've opened up the piggy bank. We've tried to get all the pound coins from down the back of the sofa and we've spent some money now. It's up to you to, he was able, he proved it using a small squad to do well in European and league. It's now whether doing it with a big squad with, it's going to feel a really unfair comment to say, but with a lot more talent and it's just whether, and hopefully he will. I know you've got no reason to think he can't, but make that click. And yeah, I think, Good European run. Conference League draw was made for them. They got some decent teams in their group. And I think that will just help build that momentum. A fair amount of squad rotation. And they've actually got a squad to be able to do it, not just 11 men and some subs, which I think at times it was looking like for them last season. Yeah. And also looking to the upcoming fixtures, we've already mentioned Spurs and Chelsea fixtures that West Ham in, in previous seasons have had some decent success in. So definitely sort of looking up. Yeah, absolutely. On Saturday, Patrick Vieira again went back to Manchester City. Everything was looking up for Palace. And as they're largely considered Man City's bogey team, it looked even better for them at half time. But come the end of the 90, it wasn't looking so good for the South London Eagles. Tom, it was the second time in two weeks that one of the other 14 has gone two up against City and not got the three points. Can we expect any of our lot to turn that sort of lead into a win against a team like City at the moment? I'd love that to be the case, Reese. but just looking at that City side, it does look like definitely a cut above the rest and rightfully so, they are champions of England and looking favourites for um, finally breaking that duck in terms of uh, European trophies. Palace going to Etihad again, it's just something about the Etihad that Palace seem to just really face up to the challenge, two 0 up, and they looked somewhat deserved. I think for for that for that lead, um, well, massively so. They they came out yeah all guns blazing in the first half and very much looked like the stronger side. Yeah, definitely. Um, but then again, City's ability to come back um, is just well, just insane. I don't think Patrick Vieira will be too disappointed. Um, with the results, I know they did ship four, but it it's City. Um, at the end of the day, you're not looking at Palace to, to go to City and, and pick up results. That's just that's not to be a sensible expectation. Palace are playing well right now. They're in 12th. Very well drilled under Vieira right now. Very disciplined. And I think Vieira in his post-match comments sort of um, acknowledged that. Um, so I don't think it should be too disappointing. But then again, when you are 2-0 up at the Etihad and with your recent experience at the Etihad, then somewhat of an expectation. But yeah, I I, I don't think 
Palace fans will be too disappointed with that. No, I don't think they can be too disappointed with the performance of the Crystal Palace players because they played really well, 2-0 up. Saying that, I think, and you may disagree with me massively, I think they might be slightly disappointed with the performance of the officials. I'm I'm not disagreeing with you there at all. I'm still not sure why Palace weren't able to have that third goal allowed for them, where Edison threw it out and I think it was completely fair game for the Palace forward. I can't remember which uh can't remember who it was, stuck his toe out and got a clip on it and then It was Edward. Oh, Edward got a toe to it and then who was it that rolled it into the empty net? Uh Jordan Ayew. Yeah, I'm not sure how that didn't stand because Edison threw it at him. He was moving away from Edison. Edison released it and he, I will say cheekily, stuck his toe out. But that's more on Edison's mistake rather than Edward breaking any rules. So I've got no idea why that was scratched off. Yeah, and I I know this is another 14 podcast talking about other 14 clubs, but as a salty Liverpool fan who had something similar happen to them in a Champions League final with Karius against Benzema. I can't see the difference. I haven't seen all of the angles of Edison when he was rolling the ball out. I, I don't know whether he still was technically in control of... Well, he wasn't in control of the ball. He was about to throw it out. But whether or not he still had contact with the ball before Edward got a boot on it. Um... But as Edward, I don't know what you can do there. That's your instinct as a forward is to stick a leg out when the goalkeeper's about to throw it out. That's what you do. I, for the life of me, just can't understand why that has been scratched off. I just, I just can't understand it. No, to me, and I think I'm in a similar position to you, I've watched the couple of angles that would have been on match of the day. And how it looks to me is that the ball was released, not for long, but enough. But looking at the distance from, Edward definitely didn't kick it out of his hand. No. And to be honest, that to me goes down as a goalkeeping error and the goal should have stood. And 3-0, admittedly, City went on to win 4-2. But still, a 3-0 down definitely changes your mindset. And Tom, what's your favourite cliche about a 2-0 lead? A 2-0 lead is the most dangerous lead in football. Exactly. And 3-0 would have made it completely different. It doesn't matter the cliche, so it's completely wrong. So, yeah. Exactly. Um, And then the other one I'm more on the fence about is there was an extremely high... Erling Haaland. Haaland's high boot. Yes, the defender was leaning down a little bit and Haaland wasn't looking at the defender he was trying to take down the ball it was he wasn't trying to tackle the player at head height but i've definitely seen those given and considering exactly not as high boots have been given as red cards before yeah that kind of that was another one where i'm like oh in my mind though my common sense says to me he didn't mean it at all he wasn't trying to take the guy's head off the guy did lean in a little bit but at the same time, I'm then going, well, where's the consistency? Because we've seen that been given as a red card before. And then 
suddenly it really looks uh, bleak for City when their player that goes to score a hat trick wouldn't have been exactly. on the pitch. Exactly. So I'm a little I'm a little unsure about all of yeah. that. So I think as good as City were, I think Palace there was definitely they were definitely unlucky. And it does seem to me that if they had had a different officiating team, they could have gone on to win three nil or at least get the three points. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you, you look at those um, decisions that went against them. We've, we've summed up quite nicely that, you know, could have potentially been three nil up and then could have potentially been up against 10 men where that man that got sent off was the man who went on to score three goals. So I, I do think Palace will have some form of, I think, not exactly putting that officiating team on the Christmas card list. Let's put it that way, I think, on the uh, end of the year. Definitely not. I do not think they will be included. Um, looking at Palace, they've had a good start to the season so far. They've um, got the draw against Liverpool and the win against Villa. And then amongst that, they've also played Arsenal and then Man City. So so a pretty tough run of games to start off. Now, going forward up until the international break, they have Brentford, Newcastle, Man U and Brighton. Yeah, Definitely with the way they've been playing, I think they can get some points from that. I don't expect magic from Palace. I don't expect them to break into the top half, but they're a good attacking side and I think Vieira's made them a bit more defensively strong. So I definitely see them being absolutely safe and fine and it'll just be how many big names they can take because they seem to be a team that can take the big names every now and then. So it'll be interesting to see how they do for the rest of the season. Yeah, I think, like you said, looking at their upcoming fixtures, I don't think you'd bet against them really in any of those those games. If they went on to win any of those games, I don't think you'd be surprised. Not at all. Um, that's just the way I think Palace are playing right now. They're, they're very disciplined sides. They've got a, a style that works for them. And, you know, Vieira into his second season in charge seems to have definitely got a grip of, of that side. There is rumours of a tentative bid for Conor Gallagher. Um, he hasn't got off to exactly the brightest of starts at uh, Chelsea going back to his parent club and obviously getting sent off at the weekend is not going to help matters. So you never know if that, that could potentially happen, especially in the up and coming days of the um, transfer deadline coming up. I, I just think for, for Palace this year, it's going to be not necessarily more of the same from last year because I think they are a better side now because they've, they've had a chance to sort of gel together over a, a year and a bit. But I think definitely sort of solid mid-table and definitely competitive in most fixtures. I think that I don't think there's going to be many games where Palace. There might be the odd game, absolutely, because it, you know it is a long season. But I don't think there's going to be many games. I think where Palace are going to be well beaten. No, not at all. I, I would say unlucky against City, and they. I think they were, did really well to get the draw against Liverpool or win yeah. the second game of the season. So, I mean, yeah. yeah I, I, sorry, I, I I do say. Well beaten. They did just lose four two to City, but I don't. Th- I don't think. I think that scoreline sort of is rather harsh against Crystal Palace. There, I, I I completely agree. And also, scoring two goals at the Etihad isn't an easy thing, no. uh, to be honest. So, I think, I think Vieira's definitely got them moving in the right direction. Interesting what you say about Conor Gallagher. I feel he's a player that there's going to be a million and one transfer rumours uh, for him until the window oh. actually shuts, including. Um, where Chelsea want to include him in the deal with Everton for Anthony Gordon, if that ever happens. So I think, yeah, the latest rumour going around is Brozier and Gallagher and 25 million for Gordon. 
why do they want to make that work? I just don't get it. Exactly. And to me, that seems mad because I'd say Gallagher, they could easily get 25, 30 million for. Ambrosia, I think you could probably get a fairly similar amount, even if it's back to the clubs that they were at loan. Exactly. Even if it's back to the clubs they were on loan at last season. Exactly. And then they would have had a lot more money to spend on Anthony Gordon. It's still a transfer that makes no sense to me. Chelsea spend weird money and I'm all for it if they're lining the pockets of the other 14, which they've done a very good job of so far because the Fafana deal went through at another stupid amount of money. And as I mentioned in the intro, we still have two unbeaten teams in the other 14. Although Mitrovic gave Fulham a shock lead at the Emirates, they couldn't see the job off. And Leeds lost their unbeaten run by losing to Brighton in a tight game settled by a good Pascal Gross strike. And Newcastle kept their unbeaten run going by sharing the honours at Molyneux. Tom, how long do you think these two teams can keep this great record going for? Yes, Reese. I think looking looking forward, I think definitely those those two teams that you've mentioned, Brighton and Newcastle, can definitely somewhat, I think keep that undefeated record going the run of fixtures at Brighton and Newcastle definitely uh, the run of fixtures at Brighton and Newcastle have you wouldn't put it past them Newcastle I think the toughest challenge that they have coming up is the um, the is it midweek they're playing yeah it's midweek game yeah the mid the midweek fixture against Liverpool that's going to be the hardest test I think but still they have a solid run of games against the other 14 clubs but again, from Brighton and Newcastle, just really excellent team performances. Newcastle were a bit sort of huff and puff for the first sort of 60 minutes against Wolves. Um, and especially we've seen like a sort of a, a pattern forming with some of the other 14 teams that have in previous weeks played really well against one of the big six sides and then not necessarily matching straight away the performance level in the following fixture. But then Newcastle's character to come back against Wolves and then Brighton with the home record that it is at the Annex for them to then just go 1-0, clean sheet, goal on the board, three points, just carry on onto the next game is just really good signs for these two sides. Yeah, they're both ticking over nicely. Um, I think looking at their run so far, they haven't had too many troubling fixtures between them. Obviously, Brighton got that really good first uh, opening day win against Manchester United. And then Newcastle did a really good job of fighting for that three-all draw against Man City. Their challenge will be against Liverpool, admittedly. But then looking at the rest up until the international break, I think both teams, it wouldn't surprise me if they both were got nine points from those games that they've got coming up. So with Brighton, they've got Fulham, Leicester, Bournemouth, and then Palace, which I, I could see them getting nine points from that. Absolutely. And then Newcastle, um, Liverpool, at yeah. Anfield, but then Palace, West Ham, and Bournemouth. Once again, all winnable games for them. Um, exactly. So I think it's really good. I think they've had a really good start. It's really exciting to see. Brighton... I think their game maybe wasn't the most spectacular against Leeds, but looking at it, they really did a job on Leeds. I think Graham Potter, tactically brilliant, really, really set Bryson up in a way that Jesse Marsh's kind of run at them real fast and real hard. Um, 
I know that's very much simplifying the Leeds approach, but that was they, Amer- they're very Americanified as well for you. Yeah. Uh, I think Potter did nullify that attack quite nicely, and then when the goal did come, um, lovely bit of play, good yep. interchange of passes, and then just rolled across for Gross to step on and put down to the bottom right of Melier was really really good, and then Newcastle one nil down um, against Wolves. Having signed a new number nine, but can't play, uh, well, couldn't play him. And then with Callum Wilson injured, I think going away, getting a point, they won't be upset with at all, um, considering their strike force wasn't up to the standard they were hoping for. No, absolutely, completely agree with all of that. Um, for Brighton, I think Pascal Gross definitely for them this year is at least from from my point of view, their player of the season so far. That's now seven goal involvements in seven games for Pascal Gross. That's uh, five goals and two assists. That's outrageous. Um, you also completely agree with Graham Potter um, with what he, what he said about um, his man there, saying that he's, he's playing in some of the form, best form of his life, and you wouldn't wouldn't disagree with that at all. I know it's a real outside chance, but are Germany looking for an attacking midfielder? You wouldn't put like- it past him, would you? It's hard to ignore a player on such form in the Premier League against the teams that he's played against. Yeah. Like with the increased squad size that they're allowed to take to the World Cup. I know Germany typically take from the German league, but if anyone's kind of playing into it, you look at German players who are performing in the Premier League at the moment, you've got Ilko Gunnarguan and then you've got Pascal Gross. Exactly. He's got to be up there. He's got to be up there. And I think it, it, he basically sums up everything that's good about this Bryant side. He's hardworking. He does all the jobs that his manager wants of him. He does well in attack. He does well in defence. He's got a great eye for a pass. I mean, that through ball that he sent through for Sonny March, um, that unfortunately March just hit straight to Melier. Oh, it was just delightful. It was a delightful through ball. And, you know, he's clearly gone into the off-season and sat down and worked hard in his game because all of his stats are up. I know it's early on in the season, but he's up in terms of per 90 stats for goals, touches in opposition box and shots. So he's clearly becoming more of an attacking threat. And for a Brighton side that doesn't score a lot at home, I think for him to try and continue that form going forward is only going to be bright for them. No pun intended. I suppose looking at Brighton as well is that in four games in, they have only scored five goals, but they've only conceded one. So defensively, yeah. they're really well set up as well. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see how they uh, how well they perform against some of the other big six sides. I know United was... The way United are playing of, of recent games, that it might have been just a one-off for United. So them coming up against the likes of City, Liverpool, Spurs, etc. Um, could be... A great test for them. Oh, exactly. It'll it'll certainly be more of a challenge, I'd imagine, and I'm sure they'll face bigger challenges from the other fourteen as well. Like yeah. we said, they've got Palace coming up. It wouldn't surprise us if Palace beat them, but at the same time, you could see Brighton very much shutting up shop, not play ultra defensively, but I could see them keeping Palace out for the length of the game as well. Yeah. So. Yeah, I, at the moment, um, Graham Potter's doing all the right things as far as I'm concerned and exactly. with a tight budget and Eddie Howe's doing all the right things as far as I'm concerned with a bit of a bigger budget. So yeah. 
absolutely brilliant. If they can both keep it up for the 38, it would be fantastic. Obviously, it's unlikely to. But at this rate, we said they would be kind of in that kind of 7th, 8th, ninth position. I could see them maybe pushing a little higher. To be honest, they're, they're in the mix. Their form's good enough. Um, I suppose it's just waiting to see how they do against um, against the big six. But once again, I could see both of them stealing ample points from both to, uh, from all those teams. Yeah, absolutely. I think the big thing for Newcastle also coming up, um, not to mention, obviously we've mentioned the, the fixture against Liverpool, um, but they're starting to pick up a little bit of an injury list. I think Bruno, you've mentioned Callum Wilson already, but I think Bruno was also sidelined with a bit of a knock. Oh, as far okay. as I'm aware. And uh, Sam Maximan, towards the end of that Wolves game, he did look as though he was walking off a little bit gingerly when he got subbed off. And there was there was a, a moment where he was clutching his hamstring. So we just uh, need to get uh, we need to get confirmation of that. But um, there uh, is some injury worries over Sam Maximan, who is playing sensationally right now. Oh, I don't think he's injured. I just think it's a ruse. I think Eddie Howe told him to have a limp off just so he wasn't subject to a three hundred million pound bid from Chelsea. That's fair because <laughs> Todd Bowley loves spending money. Although, do Saudi Arabia need three hundred million quid right now? And over to our fan favorite section, we have. Stats Corner. And welcome to Stats Corner. Yes, thank you, Reese. Uh, you know that here on Stats Corner, we're always looking for the remarkable, the, the dumbfounding, the stats that you simply would call unbelievable. Uh, this week, we're focusing on Dean Henderson. Um, after his individual heroics, not just on Sunday against Spurs, uh, but the season so far, and his career in the Prem to date. There was a stat that popped up um, after his save against Harry Kane um, from the spot in Forest's 2-0 defeat to Spurs at the weekend. That was just one of those remarkable stats. But this is courtesy of the geniuses that work at Stats Perform and the OptiJo Twitter page. Uh, Dean Henderson, in facing five penalties as a Premier League shotstopper, has only conceded once, which means his 20% of penalties conceded rate is lowest of any goalie to face at least five pens in the Prem. <laughs> That's mental. And of those four missed penalties, Henderson has saved three and one hit the post. So he's saved three, one hit the post, and unfortunately he's been put past once. Gold star smiley face, Reese. if you can name the one player that has managed to put one past Henderson from the spot in the Prem. Oh... So, it's, well, it's not been this season, I don't reckon, um, because Forest, I don't, Forest's first game of the season was against Newcastle, and I don't think Newcastle had a penalty there. So, last season at United, I don't think he'd got enough game time. So, I'm going back to when he was at Sheffield United on loan. Warm. And then you've got 38 games to pick from. Tom, I'll be honest, for the life of me, I could not tell you. I'm going to assume it was when he was Sheffield United goalie, but I couldn't tell you who beat him at all. That honour belongs to Danny Ings. Danny Ings. Oh, which one of his seven clubs was he at at the time? It was a member. He was as a member of the other 14. That was when he was at Southampton. Oh, nice. And he scored the third from the spot 
for Southampton in a 3-1 win over Sheffield United back in 2020, which was the last match date of the COVID-delayed 1920 season. So like most things during the last few years, Dean Henderson can probably just blame that missed penalty save on COVID. In terms of players that you say pens against in the Prem, it's also quite a list of, of players too. You know, you wouldn't... Wow. Def- you definitely wouldn't describe any of these players as mugs. Well, you've got Harry Kane uh, and Declan Rice from this season already. Exactly. And the other one was Gabriel Jesus. The only one of those three who actually has somewhat of a decent penalty conversion rate is Harry Kane, who has 87.5% success rate from the spot. Declan Rice only has 33. However, that is from three attempts. And Gabriel Jesus has a 50% conversion rate from the spot, which again is from six if i remember rightly yeah city just at one point didn't have a great penalty conversion rate but they were chopping and changing all the time yeah between jesus sterling mares and gundawan yeah aguero they were all missing penalties left right and center so So, i mean to stop harry kane that is that is definitely something i mean the, the guy has scored i think 28 successful penalties from the spot and i think he has over 50 successful penalties in his entire career from all competitions, if I um, have read that correctly as well. So also in terms of penalties saved in all competitions throughout his young career, he's nearly at 50%, which is a really solid percentage for for any goalkeeper. So I guess I'll ask the question, Reese. I know we can't just judge a goalkeeper on their ability to save penalties, but clearly Henderson has shown during his time as a Premier League shot stopper that he has pedigree from his two loan stints with Sheffield United, the two seasons that they were up in the league, and so far with Nottingham Forest. So my question is, is, is he knocking on the, on Gareth Straw for Qatar? And should Jordan Pickford be worried about his number one status? See, I would definitely take him on the plane at this point to Qatar, um, because I think he is a really good goalkeeper and a good backup. And I know this obviously hasn't worked well for some teams in recent, but would you not bring him in for a shootout? Because clearly he's very good. Whether that's he's just naturally really good or he does his research against penalty takers or he's just magic. I know that it's quite unfashionable to do this because Chelsea tried it with bringing um, Kepper in for penalty shootouts. But it also then did work for the Netherlands by bringing uh, Tim Krul in for Sillison in the World Cup under Van Hal, yeah. when, I'll be honest, I think both goalies were as good at penalty saving as each other. But if we actually have a good penalty saver, I don't know why we wouldn't bring him in for a shootout. No, and I definitely agree with you on that. He definitely has the record to back that up. Um, you also have to look at the fact that England's last successful penalty shootout win, Jordan Pickford was also there. So there is that competition. I, I, I think that's that's it. that's so that, that's healthy competition between two very good shot stoppers. So yeah. Gareth definitely has a lot to sort of choose from there. Mm, absolutely. Uh, Pickford is he is a good shot stopper, but if you have a player who is a good penalty saver, then I think almost the criticism would come to Gareth. Oh, it's, an, it's a, a lose-lose situation if you lose the shootout because if you don't put Henderson in and you have to keep Pickford in for a shootout and you lose, everyone will go, well, why didn't you pick the England goalkeeper who's really good exactly, at saving penalties? Yeah. Yep. And then 
Alternatively, if you bring Henderson in, you lose. You go, well, why didn't you stick with Pickford? He was warmed up. He played all, all the game. So, to be honest, it does take a fair amount of, uh, to quote uh, Twardini, it does take a fair amount of cojones to do it, to make a decision like that. But I wouldn't be upset if he did that. But that's because I have a slightly natural prejudice against Jordan Pickford, um, largely because he's got very little arms. Uh, but Henderson's really good at saving penalties. Like, the facts are there. So, I think that's given us a lot to think about heading into the World Cup in just a couple of months. So, Tom, thank you very much for your penalty edition of Stats Corner. You're welcome. Now, Tom, it's time for your favourite section and my favourite section. It's Goal of the Week. Um, Yes. Goal of the Week. So, Tom, it wasn't necessarily a game week full of positive results for all the other 14, but we were treated to a couple of absolute net busters. Can you talk me through your thinking for goal of the week? Looking at goals of the week, I think there's basically one fixture really that we can only really focus on, and that has got to be the Wolves-Newcastle game. Two absolute stunners there. A vintage Ruben Neves strike from outside of the box. And Alanson Maximan with just a simply stunning volley to secure a point, um, or at least an equaliser for Newcastle that just was out, purely picked out of the top draw. You know, all of the cliches there is, again. You know, we love cliches. I'm really, really sort of, I just don't know what to choose between because they're both really good strikes. Yeah, they they are phenomenal. It's both of them, the way they the way they kind of just approached both players as the ball was coming towards them, as you say, vintage Neves, kind of that's his zone. He can strike them well enough. And once it left his foot, it wasn't a surprise that it hit the back of the net. And I think that would have been a worthy winner of the game if he'd gone, oh, Newcastle lost, but it was to a strike like that. I think everyone would have gone, oh, yeah, fair enough. That's an unbelievable hit. But then for St. Maximan to do what he did, it was such a such a delightful hit to earn the point. It, and again, it's almost a goal that should win a game and just to be for one point yeah. almost seems a little wrong. Um, I don't envy your choice here to pick for a goal of the week. Um, were there any other honourable mentions though, that you'd like to uh, like to point out from this game week, even though there weren't a huge amount of goals to go on this week? No, there really wasn't a whole amount of, of goals to go. And, you know, there was, you know, obviously a lot of deflected strikes and, um, you know, the majority of the goals that did, or near enough, a lot of the goals that did get, get scored were by a big six side against unfortunate Bournemouth. I think the one other honourable mention that I will have was for Pascal Gross and Brighton, you know, just a, generally a really nice team goal and sums up what Brighton's all about. However, I can't really not move away or rather, you can't move away from either Ruben Neves or Alan at maximum. The one thing I would say about Ruben Neves is that the ball came out to him and he was suddenly charged down, so didn't have a massive amount of time to get the shot off, whereas in previous sort of bangers from Neves, he always seems to get that time from outside of the box. So a little bit of a higher difficulty rating, you know, going Olympic style and sort of up in the difficulty level. To get it past Nick Pope with... You know, very little amount of time and such an instinctive shot 
is just, you know, fantastic from him. Alan's had maximum for a missed clearance from Huang to then fall to his feet. I think it was sort of slightly over his shoulder, um, slightly looking away from goal when the ball came to him and then just to instinctively shoot it past Jose Zar with the power and the placement was, again, simply stunning. So techniques-wise, you're looking very sort of similar. I think, though, for the... If they're sort of technically very similar or technically very difficult, both goals, I tend to then also look at the situation um, regarding the game with Newcastle not necessarily playing as well as previous week, or especially last week, to then sort of suddenly get their mojo back and then force an equaliser that nearly forced Newcastle to then search for a winner. They were very close to getting a winner, by the way. I'm going to go with Alanson Maximum as my goal of the week. I think that is a fantastic pick. I've As, as you've been talking about it, I did go back on... Uh, I did quickly hop on my phone to re-watch the goal. Oh, and it's such a good hit. The way he yeah. just kind of steps onto it. He was a little, a little more isolated on the edge of the box. But as you say, in terms of at that stage of the game, they had been struggling really going forward, not created a great amount. But, oh, yeah, absolutely worthy winner there. And I believe that's uh, with St. Maximin winning that, that is now three goal of the week wins for Newcastle so far with Fabian shares goal against Forest in the first game of the season. And then Kieran Trippier's free kick against City last week. And now St. Maximan, that's uh, that's quite a collection for Newcastle already. And I wouldn't like to make their decision come into the season on who's going to win their goal of the season because there's at this rate, there's going to be a lot of contenders. That's quite a highlight reel, isn't it? Exactly. Newcastle just score bangers. Newcastle might not score many, but when they do, they score absolute bangers. So, well done, St. Maximan. So, Tom, with this double game week of fixtures coming up, can you please tell us what games we can be excited for? Yes, Reese. As you said, it is a double game week this week. And commencing game week five on Tuesday, the 30th of August, 2022, we have Crystal Palace at home to Brentford. Fulham are hosts to Brighton. Chelsea travel to Southampton and Leeds host Everton. Arsenal are at home to Villa. Bournemouth take on Wolves at the Vitality. Manchester City are hosts to Nottingham Forest. It's West Ham Spurs at London Stadium. And at Anfield, it's the clash of Liverpool versus Newcastle. And then the Thursday fixture to wrap off game week five, it is Leicester and Manchester United at the King Power. Moving on to game week six, we have the Merseyside derby, Everton-Liverpool at Goodison Park. It is Brentford Leeds, Chelsea West Ham in the London Derby. Newcastle are hosts Crystal Palace. It's Nottingham Forest and AFC Bournemouth at the City Grounds. Fulham travel to the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium to take on Spurs. It's Wolverhampton Wanderers against Southampton in the last of the three o'clock kickoffs. And it's Aston Villa taking on Manchester City to round off the Saturday fixtures. And then the Super Sunday lineup is Brighton taking on Leicester. Well, Tom, we have a lot to look forward to. Certainly have more to look forward to than Steve and Gerard because they are two unfriendly fixtures for him. But they then, really are. But then David Moyes and his men have a pretty tough week as well. 
playing both Chelsea and Tottenham. Moving on now to the hottest competition on the planet. It is the Fab Four predictions. And Tom, with the Fab Four for last week, you have massively closed the gap on me. So going into this week, I was up 3-0, as last week you didn't get a single result in the right direction. And this week, you you fared much better. So you had Brighton beating Leeds. You got West Ham beating Villa. So one point for each of those. And then you capped that off with three points for correctly guessing Wolves v Newcastle would be 1-1. So that is a great five points. I've moved from three points to six points by getting that West Ham would beat Villa by one goal to nil. Apparently, I'm just very good at predicting West Ham scorelines because I've got nothing else. You clearly know your team very well. I've got nothing else correct, but I've got these ones spot on. Um, So, yeah, how do you feel about your performance this week? And do you feel that Brentford let you down by not giving you a clean sweep on the scores? Yeah, I I was very, you know, Thomas Frank, what the hell are you doing? You know, I I, I was backing you guys. What what happened? I'll tell you what happened. Claire Balding scored for Everton. Their boarding did have a very good game in that for Everton, to be fair. But yeah, in all seriousness, um, yeah, much better week for myself. And yeah, I capped it off really well with that Wolves Newcastle game. And you know, thank you, Sam Maxman, for basically saving saving me there because that could have been you know four points behind Reese um, after two game two game weeks of the Fab Four. Um, so yeah, five six, I think all to play for. Yes, and talking about this next week coming so it is a busy busy week over the next seven days as time of recording we have two game weeks of premier league football that is 19 fixtures involving the other 14 and our fab four games for the next two game weeks are palace at home to brentford leeds at home to everton And then from the game week six games, we have Forest at home to Bournemouth and Brighton at home to Leicester. So, Tom, how do you think Palace will fare at home to Brentford? We've just been speaking about how they will possibly win any of their next four. Will they beat Brentford? That's a difficult one. You know, London Derby, both teams... Playing well, managers got them in, you know, managers have got them playing um, some bright football. That Selhurst Park sort of atmosphere does add a little bit of a factor to it. So I will probably, I I think both teams will score, but I am probably going to edge in favour of Crystal Palace, basically because Brentford didn't get me a point against Everton this week. So, you know, screw you, Thomas Frank. Uh, I am going to say Palace 2, Brentford 1. Nice. I haven't been burned by uh, Brentford as much as you clearly have, and you've taken it (laughs) very personally. Um, All about the clean sweep. I'm not sure what Brentford are like away from home, to be honest. Um, How have they done so far this season? I know this is bringing logic and not just blind guessing into the game, but they're currently on a good amount of points this season. So away from home, they've... Oh, they're... Got, they're not great away from home. So they lost to Fulham and they drew with Leicester on the first game of the season. So 
I'm going to go for a 1-1. I reckon it will be a draw in that Ooh. game. Okay, Leeds-Everton. I can only see it going one way, but how do you see it going? I can also see it going one way, unfortunately, and I think we both see it going exactly the same way as each other. Everton in that game against Brentford didn't really offer two. They played better. Gordon was right for them, but with the rumours hanging around him, question mark about whether or not he will be at the club come that game. Leeds will want to bounce back after losing their unbeaten records and the way that Ellen Road was bouncing against Chelsea the other week, I will go for a Leeds win and I will go... Ooh, I'm going to say 2-0 Leeds. I can completely see your logic, but I'm going to take a gamble here. Oh, oh. Everton have just signed a striker in Neil Malpai. And no one is expecting Everton to get anything from this game. Deli Alley's out the door, so another bit of toxicity that has disappeared. And I think Everton will surprise us all on the televised game on BT Sport. I say that all of them are televised on BT Sport over the next few days. So um, I'm going to go for a surprise Everton 3 1 win. Oh, I know. They're suddenly it's all going to click. Okay, Forest, Bournemouth, two teams from the Championship last season. One team has brought in sixteen new players. Bournemouth barely have sixteen players. Which way is it going to go, Tom? Again, you know, two of the newly promoted sides heading into match week six, basically a week after, obviously this weekend's round of fixtures. One team. They've been buoyed by the recent home performance against one of the big six. The other has just got a 9-0 shellacking away from home. It's whether or not Bournemouth can bounce back in that first game back after the Liverpool result against Wolves. I just don't see it because just purely of what Scott Parker's comments um, post-match, they will probably bring a couple of players in, but I don't think that will be enough to take on or take down Forrest. However, Forest have not been scoring a lot of goals so far. I still think the City ground will be bouncing, but I will go with a one-all draw. A one-one draw. Nice guessing. And I like the logic behind it. I, however, however, I will be throwing logic out the window because I'm a, uh, you may run Stats Corner, but clearly I'm the one who does any real research. And I know that, <laughs> and I know that of the last four fixtures between the two teams, Bournemouth oh haven't lost a single one of them. All in the championship, but the last four games have been a 2 0 win to Bournemouth, a 0 0, a 2 1, and a 1 0, both in favour of Bournemouth. We're going on the on-paper strategy. I so like I'm it. going for the on-paper strategy. So I'm going to say that Bournemouth will surprise us all. Now they're against one of uh, the less strong teams in the league. They've uh, licked their wounds. They've taken those hits from the big boys. And I'm going to say that they're going to surprise us with a 2-0 win against Forest. And then finally... Brighton v Leicester, two teams that are currently acting as nearly polar opposites in the table and in terms of form, with Brighton still being unbeaten and Leicester 
looking still quite fragile, particularly after that quite unfortunate defeat against Chelsea where they're against 10 men but still couldn't make that count and they're now sitting bottom of the table on one point will this game be a turning point for them or will Brighton continue their slightly positive change in home results well I think immediately put me down for Brighton scoring one goal at home um, because I think that's pretty much a given at this rate however Leicester to be fair to Leicester, even though they did lose the game against Chelsea at the weekend, they did show signs that as an attacking threat, they were starting to change um, for the better. Um, Harvey Barnes's goal was well taken. Vardy, on another day, puts his chance that he sort of scuffed past Mendy in oh, the back of the net. He shins that so badly. He really shinned he? it. Brian don't necessarily perform well at home and we've seen that in previous years it's whether or not they have turned a corner this year um like i said i think brighton will score um whether or not i think it'll probably just be the one goal however leicester i think will probably lose the game against united so i think they'll be looking for a bounce back I'm going to go for a shock result. I think Brighton will lose their unbeaten run if they don't already lose it in match week five. I think it will be a Leicester 2, Brighton 1 result. Oh. Yeah, I'm going against the grain. That is against the grain. Um, You're right. Leicester have improved slightly. However, I could see the bigger shock being that they beat Man U in the middle of the week. And everyone's on a high, and then they go and lose to Brighton instead. <laughs> the opposite, I like it. Exactly. So, um, with no real intuition or research behind this one, I'm going to say Brighton are going to win 2-0 just because defensively they're looking so strong and they haven't been conceding. Oh, well, they've only conceded one goal so far this season. So, yep. That's my prediction. I'm going to say Brighton 2-0 win. Okay, so. And that is it from us. So thank you for downloading and listening to this week's episode of the Other 14 podcast with Tom and myself. Please subscribe and give us a rating on your podcast platform of choice. Also, do recommend us to your friends and family. We are now available on all good podcast platforms, including Google, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. We have an exciting seven days ahead of us with 19 fixtures involving the the other 14. Hopefully, we'll be seeing many good games, many good goals, and many good wins for the other 14 clubs. So, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. Thank you very much, Tom. And... We'll see you next week on the Other 14 Podcast.